0: Well, good morning once again, saints. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. Last week, we considered the the seventh and final bowl of the wrath of God. The seventh angel was commissioned by God to pour out the fullness of the wrath of God the fullness of God's judgment upon the wicked. Last week we learned that the pouring out of God's final bowl of wrath produced worldwide cataclysmic flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as has never been seen since mankind has been created, and then a final plague of hundred-pound hailstones. We asked, is this meant to be taken literal? The short answer is possibly. You remember last week. It is quite possible and even probable that when the great day of God, the Almighty, comes, the entire world will be shaken to its core. We learned this last week. But, We must also not ignore, as we learned last week, the reason for this worldwide cataclysmic event. God will judge the world. And when the kings of the earth gather at Armageddon, the Mount of Assembly, to make war against Christ and his church, God will dry up the great river Euphrates, allowing demonic forces to pursue the church. They are those who have taken the spiritual mark of the beast, and they will make one final attempt to destroy the church. And just as they are about to destroy the church, God will rain down judgment from heaven upon them. He will judge them and deliver us. The earth will be shaken as Babylon falls in defeat. Nothing will be left of her, Babylon. She shall be broken in three, decimated to its core. Her mountains flattened. Her islands swept away into the sea. Nothing of her counterfeit power and nothing of her superficial beauty will remain. Lightning and thunder will break forth through the sky as God declares his word of final judgment upon the wicked. And with these, God will judge or declare from his throne in heaven, from the, from the throne in the temple where he eternally reigns, he will declare It is done. An important question was asked last week after uh, my sermon that I think deserves at least a moment of our attention. The question was this, when lightning, thunder, earthquake and hail fall, will it fall on us as well? I don't know if any of you were thinking that. As soon as I heard the question, I go, that's a good question. You might have heard hailstones, 100 pound hailstones falling, earthquake shaking and wondering, am I going to fall through the earth somewhere? Am I going to be flattened in some way by a hailstone? Will the righteous perish with the wicked on that day was the question. Short answer, no. I, I don't believe so. Here's why. The day that the kings from the east... Uh, that is, the kings from the entire world, the day that they gather to make war against the church is also called, in verse 14 of chapter, of chapter 16, the great day of God the Almighty. The day that the kings pursue, and the nations, pursue the church is also called the, the day, the great day of God the Almighty, also called that. It is immediately thereafter that God says, Christ says, in verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Uh, We would make those two the same day. The great day of God the Almighty and, and Christ coming like a thief in the night would be the same day. The same day that Babylon makes its final war against the church is also the call, we believe, is also called the same day, the great day of God the Almighty. The same day when Christ says, I will return like a thief in the night. Are you with me? Keep that in mind. Keep this in mind. John has the theme of the Exodus in mind. During this judgment. Uh, If that is the case, then we ask ourselves when the the judgment of God came, when when Egypt pursued Israel to destroy her. uh, Was any of of Israel's community were any of them lost on the day when God judged Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea? Or did they all escape through dry land safe to the other side? While they stood by and witnessed the judgment of God upon the wicked. The answer is, not one of Israel was lost. They all stood safe on the other side of the dry land. And they watched the judgment of God fall, as it were, as waters fell, fall on the armies of Egypt. If you believe in a rapture, this is it. When God pours down his final judgment on the wicked, we will be caught up with Christ in the air. And we will stand by as Israel stood by, secure, delivered, and watch and also participate in the judgment of the wicked. In chapter 17 and 18, John is given more insight into the fall of Babylon, which really is a kind of... um, it's a heart posture for those who are drunk on her wine, those who are with Babylon. It's a heart posture. We'll get to that in a moment. But I wanted to clear that up. Um, will you be struck by lightning? Uh, will uh, thunder and the sound of it cause you to implode? Uh, will you be crushed by hailstones? I don't believe so. I, I'm going to say no, and I don't believe so. I believe that when judgment falls upon the wicked, we will be caught up with the Lord in the air. It will be the same day when Christ returns like a thief in the night. Uh, So, uh, if you're hearing about all this judgment, rejoice in this. God will deliver you and judge them, and it will all happen on the same day. Now, when when is that day? We don't know what that day is, but it it will be a day that we are called to be prepared for. Amen? I hope that that helps. This morning, then, we will be considering uh, the seduction of the harlot. Chapter 17, the seduction of the harlot. Uh, we will do that this morning with God's help in three points. They will not be long points, but I think that um, it was necessary for us to at least take this time as we we're going to build from chapter build on from chapter seventeen. So let's let's deal with this. Number one, the identity of the harlot. Uh, this is really verses one through six. I'm going to be pulling from different passages in verse from verses one through six. The identity of the harlot, number one. In verse 3, John says that he was carried away in the spirit and into a wilderness to see of the woman who sits upon the beast, who sits upon, John sees, many waters. This will be later contrasted with Revelation chapter 21, when John will be carried away again by the spirit, uh, but this time, not to a... a Not to a wilderness, a deserted place, but this time in chapter 21 to a high mountain. When John is carried away by the Spirit in Revelation 21 into a high mountain, he will see another woman, a different woman. This woman is the bride, but she is not the same woman of Revelation chapter 17. We will see this contrast. Let me deal with this before we move forward into the identity of the woman. John being carried away by the Spirit. Uh, you women of the Word, you heard this on Monday, but I, I think it's, be, it's worth repeating for all of us. Being carried away by the Spirit is what Paul would say is God breathing His Word. God breathing His Word. Or God inspiring His Word. And you all know this from the book of Timothy. In Second Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter makes the point that no prophecy comes about through human invention, but that men speak as they are, listen to this phrase, carried along by the Spirit. Here in Revelation, John says, the Spirit carried me away. Peter says that when men speak on behalf of God, they are carried away by the Spirit. They, they are carried along by the Spirit. You... Uh, Uh, You who are young, uh, or you who are like me, who have been in church all my life, you've heard this word before. The word of God is the inspired word of God. It is God breathing his word. What does that mean? Or what does it mean to be carried along? To be carried along does not mean that one is overpowered or even placed into a trance when God carries them along. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. How does God inspire his men to write? They're not put into a trance. No, I said to the, to the ladies, at woman of the word, it's not like their eyes are rolling backward and they, they turn like the undertaker, the, the eyes going backward, you only see white. It's not like that, no, where they are no longer themselves. They are actually empowered. To be carried along is to be empowered to a point of awareness and understanding. To be carried along when someone is inspired by God to write is, it is to be carried along to a point of awareness and understanding. Not by human invention, but by the empowering of the Spirit to the person to write and to communicate God's message. I hope that that's clear. How does God move an author? Not by feelings. Not by sensations of creativity. Uh, You you know people who will often say, I I feel like God is speaking to me, right? That's not the way the authors of the scriptures wrote. They, They weren't saying, I feel like God is saying something to me right now. Or I'm getting a burst of creativity. I think I should write. And whatever I'm writing is what God said. No, that's not how God inspired his writers. God works to guide the mind. That's how he carries someone away. He gives information and with the giving of information, he also gives understanding. So that the author may communicate what God is revealing to the audience that God is is speaking to. To be carried along is God utilizing the hand of the authors and empowering them in a unique way wherein their minds, the information, the understanding, and even the personality, even the personality, Paul writes differently than James. God is using his personality. They are infused and heightened by God to speak on behalf of God. Okay? Here then, the Holy Spirit communicates, commissions John to see and then empowers him to understand. When John says it's something like, it's the best way that John can understand what he's seeing. It's not like John's going, I don't know what it is. No, John's saying, I know what I'm seeing, and here's the best way that I can communicate that to you. Right? Here, John is carried away. And here is what he's seeing, and here is the way that John is saying, based upon what I'm seeing, what I'm allowed to see, here's the best way that I can communicate this to you. It's a woman. With me? And this woman is... It's not the first time that we've heard of a woman, right? In Revelation, you remember in Revelation chapter twelve that after the seventh trumpet sounded, John receives a great sign that appeared in heaven. Revelation twelve and one, a woman John sees, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of twelve stars. Not the first woman that we've seen. Not the first. Not the first woman that John has seen. This woman that John perceives is a symbolic woman she's adorned with symbols, she's clothed with a sun because she's put on Christ she has uh, even in the midst of darkness light is at her feet she will not stumble for the word of God is a lamp to her feet, right? it guides her way she's crowned with 12 stars because she reigns with Christ she is, this first woman, she's the church of all time She's the bride of Christ. We'll see her again in Revelation chapter 21. But here in John 17, or Revelation 17, John sees another woman. Not the same woman clothed with Christ in Revelation 12. This woman is not the church. This woman, John sees, she's clothed in purple and scarlet. She is adorned, not with Christ. This woman is adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. In past visions, John was shown those who are in league with Satan. You remember this? John John is shown visions of those who are um, in concert, who walk with Satan. And when he's seen them, their, their appearance is hideous. Now, I don't know if, if any of you had to, maybe like I did when I was preparing these sermons. I, I'm kind of squinting, kind of uh, hard to look at Scripture when it's describing a dragon who bids one of his antichrists to arise out of the sea. The imagery was mind blowing for me. Yeah, this 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 beast emerging out of the depths of the of the sea. What is which is Uh, The depths of Sheol, rising out of hell it was. And this beast that rises out of the depths of the sea, it has ten horns. It has seven heads. Uh, It's hideous imagery. On his horns are ten diadems, and on his head blasphemous names. The first one. The first Antichrist. And then Satan uh, calls forth his second Antichrist, and this one not out of the sea, but now this one out of the earth. His appearance was like that of a lamb with two horns. Looks like a lamb, but when he speaks, he speaks like a dragon. The two beasts, the two antichrists, who are who are um, called forth by this great dragon, Satan, the devil. But now John sees another who is in league with Satan, who also walks with Satan, who also um, is is called forth by Satan, as it were. But, but she is not hideous. She has all of the appearance of beauty. She's not just any kind of woman. What she is wearing identifies her audience. Uh, what she is wearing would identify her to her audience as to what she is. John says she is wearing purple and scarlet. She is wearing gold and jewelry. She is adorned with all of these these uh, beautiful accessories. And those who are the first who are hearing this would say she's a prostitute. And John would say, "You're right. She is a harlot." Not just any kind of common harlot. John says she is a great harlot. Not great in the sense that she is wonderful, but great in the sense that her sin is exceedingly great. She is exceedingly idolatrous. She is exceedingly an adulterer. She is exceedingly a harlot. She is the harlot of harlots. So much so that she produces harlots. She is a harlot that produces other harlots. That is how great of a harlot she is. John sees her, and the angel says, "Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters." Let's learn. We're we're, we're talking about identity. Number one, who is this woman? She is a harlot. She is a harlot of harlots who produces harlots. She is not just a harlot. She's a great harlot. I'm I'm interchanging the word uh, for some of you, young, for the younger ones, in case parents want to have that conversation on your own. She is a harlot, number two. Secondly, she is a a harlot who sits upon two things. First, she sits upon many waters. We're learning her identity. She sits upon many waters. That is, she has authority. but, But most likely, she has great influence, listen to this, through her seduction over nations. The waters are nations, they are peoples, they are multitudes, the scriptures will say. She has great influence over all nations, peoples. She sits upon not only many waters, but she also sits upon a scarlet beast. Look at verse 3 again, verse 17, chapter 17. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Who is this beast? He is the one full of blasphemous names, seven heads and ten horns. You know this beast. He is uh, scarlet red because he devours the blood of the saints. He persecutes them and puts them to death. And this woman, this harlot, she rides upon him. She sits upon him. He's one of the antichrists that Satan called from the depths of the sea. And this woman rides on his back. She has his full backing. She has his... um, No... She gives him her full allegiance. She works for him. Let me be careful how I say some of these things, but she is a harlot who works for him. Uh, Those of you who know what I mean, that's what I mean. She's a harlot who works for him. He tells her where to go and she goes. She brings back to him all of her earnings. that clear enough? He promises to take care of her. He promises to give her everything that she could ever want and desire. The woman also holds a cup. We're talking about identity. She's holding a cup full of abominations, full of unclean things, full of her immorality. This woman enjoys, here's abominations, she enjoys or takes delight in idolatry. She's holding, full of gold, the thing that she takes most joy in, and that is worshipping created things and not the Creator Himself. The abominations is idolatry. Her immorality is the, the, listen to this, the intimacy that she has with her false idols. The intimacy, the intimacy that she has with her gods is her immorality. She finds especially delight Because she's drunk on it. She finds especially delightful the the blood of the saints. She enjoys idolatry. It's something that she takes pleasure in. But she especially gets drunk on the blood of those who call upon the name of Christ. She's drunk on their blood. Meaning she can't get enough of it. Uh, It's something that she is addicted to. She loves to put them, you and I, to death. She rejoices at the death of the people of Christ. Uh, She rejoices when men, like our brother Antipas, are put to the sword. Antipas, who was put to the sword in Pergamum, one of the seven churches. Where is this woman located? We're, We're working toward her identity. The Holy Spirit carries John away to the wilderness. That's where she is. The wilderness is often associated with sin. And it is... Uh, sin and its barren results, meaning uh, you don't find fruit, per se, you don't find fruit growing in the wilderness. Not in the desert. It's barren. And it only produces barrenness. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, the wilderness is said to be inhabited by demons. In Matthew 4, Jesus is led away into the wilderness to to do what? To be what? To be tempted by Satan. The prophet Isaiah described the desert or wilderness as the place from which invaders would come and destroy Babylon. And then later where Babylon herself would be turned into a wilderness. And of course, Revelation 12. You you remember this. Uh, The refuge prepared for the church who is sojourning through the wilderness. The church is kept safe as they sojourn through the wilderness. Now, who is this woman? Well, we know that she's a harlot. We know that she has influence over nations. She's been given the authority to do so by the beast that she rides. She dwells in the wilderness. Who is she? She is the great city in Revelation chapter 16 that is split in three because of God's divine justice. The woman is Babylon. The woman is Babylon. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 18. John says, uh, the angel says to John, the woman who you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. She is Babylon, uh, and she sits on not one water, but many waters. Revelation 17:15. The waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. She is Babylon. Saints. She is every single kind of worldly influence that attempts to lure you away from Christ. Who is this woman? I'll say it again. She is every single kind of worldly influence that attempts to lure you away from Christ. She pollutes the many waters with her poisonous sin. And those who drink those waters become drunk with her wine. One day Babylon will be forced to drink a different kind of wine. The wrath of God. Revelation 17.5 On her forehead is written a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of abominations of the earth. In Revelation 12, uh, the woman clothed with the sun is symbolic of a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. So this woman, the harlot, is symbolic of a people not chosen by God. People with a counterfeit power. A people who are an unholy nation because they have taken the mark of the beast upon their heads and upon their hand. Their thoughts and their actions are only aimed toward that which does not glorify them, glorify God, but glorify themselves. This woman, it represents all that lures people away, but they become a nation. All that is lured away, all the people that are lured away from Christ, they become a nation that is, that could be compared to a type of Babylon. Saints, what nation are you a part of? I say saints, people here, what nation are you a part of? Saints belong to the holy nation of Zion. But I ask you, what nation do you belong to? This woman has her identity written on her forehead. She's the mother of harlots, the, the mother of harlots and abominations. The mother of harlots... And abominations. Abominations is idolatry. She is the mother of those who practice idolatry. She's the mother of those who give themselves to someone other than God. She produces idolaters. People who run after everything that she offers. They take the mark of the beast. They find their pleasure in what the world offers and provides. She is She's a true harlot. She cares nothing for those who come to her. She only pretends to care so that her wealth and influence may increase. She comes, she calls those to come to her who believe there's security in her, that there's, there's friendship with her, that there's, there's true love and joy and peace with her. But she doesn't care anything for them. She only wants them to come and to keep giving to her. It may appear as though it may appear as though John is being vague, but he's really not. Those who are hearing this for the first time knew exactly what John's talking about. The harlot isn't a literal woman. You all know that, right? She's not a woman that you're going to go walking through the night. There she is. No. Just as Babylon isn't a literal nation in a particular region of the world. Are you with me? The seven churches of Asia Minor, the ones who first heard this again, when they gathered for worship to hear this letter read to them, they knew exactly what John was talking about. The saints, the seven churches of Asia Minor, were being pressured by the political powers of Rome to offer tribute to Caesar. To offer worship to Caesar. They were being pressured. And the pressure would intensify to pledge their allegiance to the state. This was the beast that arose from the sea. But not only pressure from the state. They were also being uh, experiencing religious pressure. There were those who looked like lambs but spoke like dragons. That were telling them, you commit no sin by offering tribute, worship to Rome. If it means saving your life, if it means having money to put, having, having money to put food on your table and a roof over your head, you commit no sin. God knows. They were spreading doctrines of demons. They were attempting to pollute the gospel of Jesus Christ. Churches were being confronted by these teachings of the Nicolaitans, by the teachings of the Jezebels who were trying to lure men away with their false and flattery speech. They were telling the church, it wouldn't be wrong. You would commit no sin. They were also saying, look at how well everyone is doing. They're enjoying your their lives. This following Christ, it doesn't seem to be worth it. Look at all of the other things that could be yours if you just turned away from Christ. It's what the harlot is doing. Harlan is saying, first we had the political pressure, the religious pressure, and now the seduction from the world in all of its various forms, saying, Come out of Christ. Turn away, turn your gaze away from him. There are things more enjoyable in this life than him. Going with Christ will only cause you pain. Going with Christ will only cause you to be put to death by the state being being seen as an outcast by those who are around you and you not being able to enjoy your best life now. Christians who held fast and refused to give into the pressure of the state, who refused to believe the heretics, they were losing their jobs. They were losing their livelihoods. They were facing um, potential financial instability, which amounts to this. A loss of security. What are we going to do? Uh, we have no money, we have no food, we have no roof. Uh, we are being squeezed by the world, the flesh, the devil. What are we going to do? Which leads us to our second point. What is the seduction of the woman? Are you guys hot? Is it hot in here? No? Okay. Maybe you can turn it. What is the seduction of the woman? Second, number two. The seduction of the harlot. The seduction of the harlot. This is verses again 1 through 6. <clears throat> Once again, notice the attire of the harlot. Verse 4. The woman is clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Again, those who are first hearing this would have immediately picked up, picked up on the imagery that John is using. Her costly attire is symbolic of royalty, that it, political power. Also, the things that she's wearing point to the, what's called the aristocracy, the high society, those who have money. So not just political power, but also those who were seen as being the, the most influential in society because of their money. The attire of the harlot is connected to this allurement. What is her seduction? This is very, very simple, okay? The harlot lures image bearers, you and I, away with anything. Anything and everything that promises more love, joy, peace, and satisfaction than what can be found in God. You with me? The harlot's allurement is anything that promises more satisfaction in her than what you can find in God. I think I need to be very clear about this point. The things that she wears, that they are presented as beautiful. They seem to be having everything that the heart naturally longs for. That's it. The heart, the fallen heart naturally longs for. Her goal is to gain image bearers' attention so that we might turn our gaze away from our Creator, the one in whose image we are made. John is not using the symbol of a, har- of a harlot to communicate only sensuality. The, the symbol is used, but not just to symbolize only sensuality. Are you with me? As the only tactic of the evil one. John is not saying that sensuality is the only way that God is, that, that Satan is trying to lure you away. It is a tactic, not the only tactic. Yeah? John is using the imagery of the harlot to communicate anything that lures nations, peoples, multitudes, tongues, anything that lures them away to give their hearts to one who is unfaithful like a harlot. She's holding abominations, which is idolatry, and she's calling Image bearers of God, men and women who are made in God's image, to turn away from worship of the one true God in whose image they are created to worship of something other than God, which is the abominations that she holds in her cup. It's to turn to idolatry. The harlot is calling men, women, boys and girls, yes, you even boys and girls, to turn away from God and worship something, someone other than God. What thing? Anything other than God. Anything other than God. The harlot is calling you to commit your hearts to one who makes a commitment to no one except the beast. She says, commit yourself to me. I But she won't commit herself to you because she's only committed to one, the beast. What's amazing is I think in chapter 20 or 19 the beast will ultimately destroy her. The beast will put her, the beast will kill her that's how much loyalty he has had he has to no one but himself here here's, but here's the most outrageous thing here it is those who follow the harlot willfully choose one who does not have love for them nor who is not faithful to them over one who is perfect love Because he is love over one who is eternally faithful because his name is faithful and true. They willfully choose one who has no love and will not be faithful over one who is love and who is eternally faithful. They willfully do. This is the outrageous thing that John is amazed at, I think. Some commentators will say that John sees her and he's amazed. I don't think that he sees her and is amazed by her beauty. I think that he sees her and is amazed that men are running after her. Men being all men. Running after her over and against running after God. You will remember the prophet Hosea who in Hosea chapter 1 was called by God to go and, and do you remember what, what he was called and go to go and do? Hosea was called to go and take a harlot for himself as a wife. The prophet, called by God, go and take Gomer the harlot, the well known harlot. Uh, Hosea would have known who this woman was. Go and take Gomer the prophet. Uh, go and take Gomer the harlot as your wife. For what reason? The Lord says to Hosea, the land commits flagrant harlotry. They're forsaking the Lord. It was to be, um, I forget the, the, the wording for it, it was to be a, a, an animated sermon, a, 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 a type of a sermon that shows by the way that, that that he does something, Israel, this is what you are doing. I forget what the name is called, or what the word is called. The Lord would use Hosea and his marriage to Gomer, the, the harlot, as a Rebuke against Israel, who, like Gomer, played the harlot against a god. Hosea would, would be representative of Israel. And Gomer would be representative of all of the false gods that Israel is running after. And Hosea would go into the streets and say, just as I have married this harlot, <laughs> can you imagine being a harlot in that relationship? Um, so you, Israel, have, have played the harlot with these false gods. Hosea 4.11, Harlotry, wine and new wine, take away their understanding. My people consult their wooden idols and their diviners. Wand informs them, for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. They've turned away from the one who really loves to the one who does not love. They've turned away from the one who is faithful to the one who is unfaithful. The third child of Gomer and Hosea was named by God, Lo-Ami. For the Lord said, you are not my people and I am not your God. The harlot in Revelation is the nations of the world who are compared to the nation of Babylon. The nations of the world who are called, ha- called harlots because they have shaken, they forsaken their creator. They have willfully, listen to this word, enslaved their hearts to idols. They've willfully given themselves over as slaves to idols. They are like Aaron who said to Israel after they were released, saved, delivered from the bondage of Egypt, and they stood around this golden calf, here is your God. Here is your God. And they begin to give gold to form their God. Dear ones, what is the, what are the first and second commandments of God's law? God's moral law. You know them. You heard them read uh, Sabbath after Sabbath, don't aren't you? Uh, don't you? Uh, Revelation chapter Exodus chapter twenty verse two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, sent the language. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. David and I had a conversation about this a few weeks ago. One of the criticisms that unbelievers unbelievers, have against the one true God of heaven and earth is this. He describes himself as being jealous. You ever had anybody say, what's up with the whole jealousy thing? I thought we were supposed to be jealous. But God says he's jealous. How do you deal with that? Pastor Isaiah encouraged me last night, don't run away from what scripture says. God says he's jealous. Don't shy away from the language that God uses about himself to describe himself. God is jealous. Now, when we say God is jealous, we obviously make negations, right? What are those negations? Well, when we think of jealousy, don't think of jealousy in the way that you and I are jealous. Because God is not like you nor I. God is the divine. You are the creature. God is the creator. We are the creatures. God is not like us. So when God says jealousy that he is, don't think of the way that you are jealous. Uh, Let let me help you. The way that you and I are jealous. Some people love to say, I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous of anything. Um, When we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. What does it mean for God to be jealous? Well, let's start with a few things about us. You and I, I hope that we can all say amen to this, are not perfectly and absolutely good. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, you and I are not perfectly and absolutely, absolutely loved to the point that we could be said that we are love itself. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad some of you are agreeing with that. Our good, this is not absolute. Our goodness, uh, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes we're very good, sometimes we're not so good. But we are never ever, even though we might have times of being really, really good, we are never perfectly good, absolutely good, without change. We love, and we love in, in, in ups and downs, right? We love in, in a kind of roller coaster kind of way. Some days we are very, very. Think about our kids. Some days we just, oh, I want you around me all the time. I want to hug you and I want to love you. Don't leave me. Let me hold you like you were just first born. And then other times, go away, go to the other room, run over there. There's toys over there. Go, go get it. Right? I still love you. It's just that the, our display of it is not perfectly, perfect as it always, uh, as we would always like it to be. Our love ebb, our love ebbs and flows. Our goodness ebbs and flows. God does not. Human jealousy is never perfect. Human jealousy always, thank you, Pastor Isaiah, always contains a touch of pride. No matter how good the reasoning for your jealousy is, there's always a touch of of self-preservation. There's always a touch of what about me? What about us? What about what we have? Right? There's always a touch of that. But I'm speaking. I'm speaking only of um, relationships, right? There's plenty of other ways that people are jealous. Plenty of other ways that that don't have to do with um, man-to-woman, woman-to-man, spouse, relation. There are plenty of other ways. Let's just use this one because it's the most easiest and I don't want to go through all the different ways of of jealousy. There's always a sense of self-preservation for the one who is jealous. There's always a sense of what about me that is not located in perfect love or goodness. God's jealousy is never located in a fear of losing something in himself. Or, or losing something of himself. If I lose you, I'm losing a part of me. No, that's that's not the way that, that God is ever God is never fearful of losing something of himself. God's not worried about self-preservation. God's not worried that, that, that you might actually find someone they're thinking relationships, you might actually find someone who is actually better than him. That you might find someone who's actually more enjoyable than him. He knows his own goodness because he is his own goodness. So then how is God jealous? And, And what does that have to do with the harlot in Revelation? This is important, right? The word jealous is an English derivative of a Latin word, zealous. From which we get the word zealous. It's been translated both jealous and zealous. Aquinas, zeal, whatever we take it, arises from, listen to this, the intensity of love. The intensity of love. One might even say, for God, the perfection of love. For it is evident that the more intensely or more perfectly a love, um, uh, more intensely or a power tends to anything, the more vigorously it withstands opposition or resistance. Meaning this: God is love. He is perfect love. He has made his creatures in his image for the purpose of enjoying. His perfect, absolute, good love. God was under no compulsion to, to create anything in His image, but did so because God is good. And because God is good, He wants the most good for you. God is already good. He doesn't need you to add to His goodness. God made you in His image so that you could enjoy the perfect and most absolute good. See, there's no self-preservation in his jealousy. He's not saying that if you don't, then I'm going to lose something of myself or I'm going to feel really bad that you went somewhere else that's actually better than me. God knows that what he wants for you is actually your most good. The harlot doesn't want your most good. She wants her most good. You with me? God has made us to have communion with him, Mm -hmm. to delight in him. Listen to this. To fix our eyes on Him, who is not only the author and creator of all life, but He's also the author and finisher and perfecter of our faith. He's saying, fix your eyes on Him in order to gain fullness of peace. Not as the world gives, Jesus will say, my peace, which is perfect peace, to receive joy. Not just any kind of joy, fullness of joy. If you want these things, God is saying, go to him, because for you, you will find the most of what you naturally long for, which is only found in him. And God says, go to him for your own good. Mm-hmm. And when you do, he receives glory. Mm-hmm. But not something that's added to him, something that he eternally and perfectly has. You're not going to God, now God has glory, he's just He's putting, he's pouring it into this... this, this this glory mobile, or this glory uh, pot, we're just adding more. God is infinitely glorious. Augustine says, love is a movement, God. Love is a movement toward the object. Love is a movement toward the object love. And intense love seeks to remove anything that opposes it. Why does God say, go to him? He wants to remove all of these things because they are not the most good for you. And because God has perfect love, God is love, he wants to remove any other thing that tries to compete for your love because you won't find it in them. Any. I, I, I started to type the things, and I I just was like, stop. Holy Spirit, help them to see what that thing is that tries that is competing for God's gaze. Think of, thinking of a harlot. God is saying. If you look, fix your gaze on her, you won't find the good that you're looking for. He made us to enjoy His goodness and we will find most good in Him. He made us so that we might find fullness of joy in Him. But here's what Satan does. Satan comes as a harlot. No, Satan sends his harlot. That's better, right? Satan sends his harlot. To get your gaze off of God and to lure you away with her bait. Whatever that bait is. Dangles it before the eyes, listen to this, of image bearers, Not just Christians. Yes, Christians. We can't be lost. We won't be lost. Mm -hmm. But we can be tempted. Mm -hmm. But for all creatures... To dangle her bait to attempt to lure the heart of men, men from every nation away by, away by her seduction. He's put her on the street and told her, go to work, promising that one day that they will together ride off into the sunset, but one day he will kill her himself. That's going to be imagery. That's going to be symbolism, because it's actually God who does this. Um, God will, will pour out his hail on the air, his judgment on the air. The harlot is the air. God does this. Satan is almost putting her in front of him. But he will be destroyed as well. God is zealous and jealous. And though those have negative connotations, it, it, as Pastor Isaiah said to me yesterday, it's, it's a mixed perfection. It has the word that sounds negative, but it is altogether located in something that is perfect. Unlike fallen humanity, God's zeal and jealousy has no hint of self-preservation or pride. God wants ultimate good for his creatures because God is love and God is good. God says, when he says, I'm zealous, it's founded in something that is in perfect love that he has for us. So the next time someone goes, how is it that God is jealous? Hopefully you'll have a better answer. I know that I will. When God says that he is jealous, it's because he knows that he is absolutely good and only wants the best for you and I. Amen. And it's better than anything that could ever be offered to you. And anyone that could ever be offered to you. His intentions toward us is good. Here in Revelation chapter 17, John sees that the world can be compared to the nation of Babylon who has given herself to this harlot and who is actually the harlot herself, who's allowed their hearts to be lured away by money, sensuality, power, fame, security, and health All those things. And when the church exposes the harlot for who she really is, the harlot opposes her, pursues her in order to silence her and put her to death. The harlot is drunk off of the blood of the saints. And here is John's warning for the inspiration of the Spirit to the seven churches and to the church of all time. She's already judged. She's already judged. 17 verse 1. Come and see the judgment of the harlot. She's already judged. Along with the beast, along with the dragon, she will fall. And here's here's John's encouragement. Through Jesus, this is our pastoral letter from Christ our Savior. Here it is. Don't give in to her. Don't follow her. Don't take what she offers; it will kill you, and you will be judged with her. Number three, finally closing: fools' gold. Fools' gold. Seven churches were faced with increasing opposition that threatened their livelihood. Again, livelihood is connected to security. Um, the burden of security began to weigh on the hearts and minds of the, of the churches. Here's what they probably began to ask as they were being, as they are experiencing pressure. We have not experienced in our lifetime a state-sanctioned pressure, religious pressure. Not really. They're asking the question, what will we eat? What will we wear? What will become of our lives? And the Harlem is doing this, dangling everything that they are worried about. You want it? It's right here. Come and get it. Trying to, to lure the bride away. Whatever it is that causes you to chase that over God is the harlot. Forsaking God in order to gain whatever I have here wealth, whatever it is. Forsaking the Sabbath to pursue uh, whatever is luring you away. Forsaking the gathering of the saints. Rejecting the means of grace. Throughout your week of uh, living as the world and not as one who is, who's in the world but not of the world, all of those things are, are your, is the person being lured away by the harlot. Let me close with this. This is simple, okay? No one can serve two masters. John, or Matthew 6, 24. He will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and crisis as well. You can't serve God and wealth. Whatever it is that the, the harlot is dangling in front of you, can't serve them both. You're going to be devoted to one and, and despise the other. There, there will be times I have to go to church, but I would rather be doing this. You can't serve them both. The heart that is divided, whether it be for wealth or any other thing that lures you away from complete devotion to God, is another God which is no God, which will cause you to be judged with that false God. Hobbies, leisures, sports, um, a particular goal, whatever lures your heart away from devotion to God is a harlot. And when you give yourself over to them, you become a child of the harlot. The harlot produces harlots. Seven churches, the threat of security was a temptation to give in to the seduction of the harlot. John's warning is this. It's fool's gold. Don't pursue it. Take your eyes off of it. It will not yield you what you're looking for. She won't give you what your heart longs for. It can only be filled by God. As I've said before, She is a well that does not hold any water. Scripture say this too. You will continue to give your time, your energy, your effort. And in the end, you will go and see, now how much is in there? And nothing will be there. It's a well that holds no water. It's an investment that will yield you no return. You will be planting in a barren field. Security is a temptation for all of us. I've been self-employed now for the last 13 years, 14 years. Security is a temptation for all of us. The the, the phone is not ringing. Jobs are not coming in. What will we do? There are times when you start to think, uh, maybe I will do this, maybe I will do that, rather than letting your heart trust in that God has provided bread for just today. Just today's bread. I don't know about tomorrow's bread, but here's what I do know about tomorrow. If tomorrow comes, God will provide bread tomorrow like he's provided bread for today. Just as God has made a way for us to be secure yesterday, he will do so today. And if tomorrow comes, then God will also do the same for us tomorrow. Forget about three days from now, saints. Forget about next week. What will we do next year? You're not even there yet. You're here and only here. Make plans and investments for tomorrow. It's wise. But to forsake God and the reason why you exist to worship him alone so that you can worry about how you will do tomorrow is foolish. I'm going to close with this. Our Lord told a parable in Luke. Is it Luke? I think it's Matthew. Matthew chapter. Maybe it is Luke. Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read this and then uh, make one brief statement and close. Luke 16? Yeah. Oh, I have one more, too. The land of a rich... uh, he He told a parable saying that the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul. Soul, you have many goods. Soul, laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night, your soul, the soul that has taken uh, pleasure in all the things that we have and all the things that are secure, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared all of the effort all of the all of the, the the time and energy and money that you've spent and given your soul to god says and now your soul is being asked of you and where have you placed it you've placed it in idols you've placed it in things that cannot bring you security because now your soul is being asked of you and the things that you have put so much time and effort into they belong to somebody else who's going to own them now all the treasures that you've laid up i've got this and i'm putting it in the way in a lockbox Then when you die, who is it going to go to? And why will you care? Because your soul is asked of you, is being required of you now. The temptation was this. God, will you take care of me? And our Lord shows for those who trust in the harlot, He says, ask her to take care of you. But for those who trust in Christ, here's what He says to you in closing. For those who trust in Christ, this is what God says to you in closing. Matthew chapter 6. In closing. Verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? And who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field, how they, they do not toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Don't worry then, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, those who don't serve God, those who follow pagan gods, they worry and eagerly seek after these things, for your heavenly Father knows what you need of all these things. But listen to this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The seven churches, is it worth following Christ? John is also saying, count the cost. The cost is, you need to walk by faith. Yes, he will take care of you. And it is worth it. Because the woman will be judged. The saints will be glorified. Let's pray.